Welcome to Earth Matters, environment and social justice stories from Australia and around the world, produced in the studios of 3CR on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation in Nam, Melbourne, and going out across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host for today, Judith Peppard. As most of you know, Australia has one of the highest rates of overall biodiversity decline and extinction among wealthy countries. As Kate Umbers told Earth Matters a couple of weeks ago, for Australia's invertebrates, biodiversity is on a knife edge. You know, the majority of our species are not even described. We have no geographic information for half of our invertebrate species that have been described. We can't say with any certainty that, you know, the majority of our invertebrate species are secure and we continue with unchecked climate change, land clearing, people endlessly putting pesticides into the environment. I think it's pretty clear that our biodiversity is on a knife's edge. And the Alps are the extreme version of that because no matter what you do, no matter how well they're protected in a national park, you can't exclude climate change from a national park. Kate Umbers from Western Sydney University. And there's great concern about Australia's mammals too. At least 39 species endemic to Australia, found nowhere else in the world, have become extinct since European colonisation. The Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, or EPBC Act 1999, was supposed to protect Australia's environment and biodiversity, but an independent review, commissioned by the Morrison government in 2019, found the act a complete failure and in need of an overhaul. When the interim report of the review was published in 2020, it was clear that the Morrison government was having none of it. 3CR spoke with Rob Fowler, a professor in environmental law, in August 2020, after the interim review was published. The government was obliged to conduct an independent review because the Act itself does contain a provision that requires a review once every 10 years. So it had no choice, and it it waited to the very last moment to initiate the review. So that's the first thing to understand. The government didn't choose to go into this review. It was compelled to do so by the law itself. And I think there's been a competing tension uh, ever since the review was initiated as a result of some of the statements made by the Federal Environment Minister uh, between the goal of greater efficiency in the implementation of the law, which means the minister's called less green tape, and, and greater effectiveness, which is what the community has been seeking in terms of outcomes and the objects of the Act. And those tensions are, are evident even uh, after the independent review has presented its interim report, insofar as the reviewer has called for major reform of the Act, has called for the establishment of a, an independent regulator who would not be subject to ministerial direction to oversee compliance and enforcement. And immediately the minister stepped in and said, well, we're just not going to do that. That's out of the question. And what we are going to do is we are going to make amendments to the Act even before you presented your final report in November uh, to try to address the, what we see as the inefficiencies of the Act. So that the government's position is very clear. It, it is not interested in major reform of the Act to improve environmental outcomes. Its objective is to try to 
facilitate more efficient approvals of proposals. And of course, with the COVID situation now and the commission that has been looking into the post-COVID, so-called post-COVID recovery plan, largely populated by people with a background in the gas industry, it, it has the perfect excuse for saying we, we now are in a position where we need to move rapidly to, to stop this act from getting in the way of major resource development. And that was Rob Fowler speaking with 3CR back in August 2020. Unlike the previous government, the federal Labour government has responded to the review and it's now in the process of rewriting the legislation. The proposed amendments to the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, or Australia's new nature laws, as they're being called a bit easier to say, are yet to be tabled in Parliament. But a rolling consultation is underway and we're all invited to participate. But how do we assess whether the new proposed laws can prevent further species loss and habitat destruction? Ewan Ritchie is a professor of wildlife ecology and conservation at Deakin University. He and several of his colleagues from across Australia have written an article for the conversation entitled Five Things We Need to See in Australia's New Nature Laws. The paper offers a kind of checklist of what the revised law must include. I caught up with Ewan before Christmas and began by asking why he and his colleagues felt it was important to write the paper. It's a fundamentally important time for Australia's wildlife and ecosystems because the government is currently reviewing the major environmental law, Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, EPBC. It's a really important law or piece of legislation because it really speaks to how we manage you know, wildlife ecosystems, threatened species. And so... We really want to see significant improvement in the outcomes for threatened species, wildlife. As many of your listeners, I'm sure, are aware, Australia has one of the worst conservation records in the world, and therefore we need to change things. Uh, things are not going to continue or even horribly get worse. We're really hoping that government listens to scientists and experts and the advice that we're providing in terms of making stronger laws and what those key elements would look like to achieve that. You and your colleagues have identified five things. And the first one is a climate trigger. So what does that actually mean? If I'm looking at draft laws or consultation documents, what will I be looking for in terms of a climate trigger? Well, essentially what that means is an obligation for the minister of the day to consider the impact of a potential development on the climate. So at the moment, the minister is not actually bound legally to take into consideration as an example, if they're looking at approving a coal mine, the impact of that coal mine might have on climate change and therefore, of course, on the environment. They're not actually bound legally under the EPPC to have that in there. So we're arguing, well, of course, in 2023, and given what we know about climate change and what's impacting biodiversity, it's basically absurd to not have climate change explicitly recognised as a key threat and to have that in legislation to say that whenever a development is being considered for approval or not, and obviously when we're weighing up its potential impact, we explicitly need to consider the impact that that might have on climate change and therefore biodiversity and, and ecosystems. The trigger itself just means that whenever a, a development is being considered, if there's any suggestion that that's going to impact climate, then that inverted commas gets triggered so that there's an explicit requirement of people to consider that, which currently there's not. So again, I'm sure people are aware that on two occasions, members of the public have taken the environment minister to court 
to argue that they have a duty of care in particular to Australia's children, but also more broadly to the environment to take climate change into account. And they were unsuccessful, not because people don't think that that's true, but purely because legally at the moment, that's not a requirement for the minister. So... And your second one is Habitat, Places to Live, Homes for Wildlife and Protection of Sufficient and Connected Habitat. What do you mean by connected habitat? One of the problems, of course, is that animals' homes are being destroyed. So when we have native forest logging or land clearing for agriculture, animals live in trees or around trees and vegetation. And when that's removed, those animals no longer have somewhere to live. But it's also how big an area an animal has to live in and how many patches there might be. So if you can imagine, let's say you have a patch of rainforest and a cassowary is living in that patch of rainforest. If it's a large patch, that's fine. But there might be, let's say, a number of small patches and they might be interspersed by open pasture, you know, that might be used for livestock grazing. And cassowaries are actually really reluctant to move across open areas, particularly if those open areas are large. And so if we keep not just destroying habitat, but essentially breaking it up into smaller and smaller pieces and they're, they're far apart, that is literally death by a thousand cuts for wildlife. And so... Yeah, ideally, we need to connect habitats up because animals don't stay in the one spot all the time. They typically move around looking for whether it's food, whether it's to find mates, to avoid predators. There's a whole range of reasons why animals move through the landscape and therefore they need to have landscape that's connected that allows them to move through it. I'm just thinking like some you've given some examples in the paper of the problems that we're looking at here, particularly in northern Australia. I'm wondering if you could say a bit about that, I think, in the northern tropical savannah. Yeah, so there's a range of threats that are occurring in the tropical savannas at the moment. Fire is a big one, um, invasive species, particularly invasive plant species, gamba grass, but also buffalo grass going into central Australia. But we also have some really big development proposals as well at the moment in northern Australia. So people might be aware of middle arm, big gas projects, um, fracking and so forth, and also water extraction as part of those two, but significantly land clearing northern Australia. So at the moment, the Northern Territory has perhaps the most insufficient native vegetation laws. So large amounts of habitat can be cleared without basically any approval needing to be sought. Um, also, in many cases, it's really up to the um, project proponent to self-report. So they need to basically assess whether there's an issue potentially with biodiversity and hence they need to, you know, report themselves essentially for an assessment. Say for a minute there, you and when you say the proponent, you're talking yeah. about the people that are proposing the land clearance, Correct. right? So, you know, imagine you might own a large cattle station and you might want to um, knock over some of the trees to change it over to a cropping area, as an example. It's on them to self-report. Um, which you can see the problem there because obviously, you know, there are many people that would potentially self-report because they want to do the right thing, but there's also a proportion of people that may not. And also, um, unfortunately, you know, in the past, there has been cases where people have illegally cleared large amounts of vegetation on their properties and have been found to have done that. But the fines that they received are quite small and hence you could argue that they may just decide to clear anyway because they know that they're still financially ahead 
because the fine they pay is still much less than the benefit they get from converting that land to production landscape. So we, we just clearly need to have much stronger uh, laws, including in the Northern Territory, but nationally, that prohibit behaviour that is, you know, basically um, going to place threatened species at risk. And relying or expecting landowners to self-assess is problematic because we also have really poor information in many cases about where threatened species even occur. So for people to make judgments about the impact of a particular development, if they're not experts, is pretty questionable. With the new laws that we're talking about, they are national laws, I understand. Yes, that's right. So will that have a, an impact on the state laws then? Is there going to, does there need to be some interaction across those two? Yeah, so the, the issue with the environment in Australia is that in many cases, environmental issues are actually controlled by state and territory governments. When federal law becomes most relevant is when a threatened species is particularly impacted. And that's where the EPBC comes in. So that's where the federal government has a stake in, you know, what can happen and, and how things are dealt with. But otherwise, it's largely an issue for the states and, and the territories. So the ideally, what we want to see is better alignment between the various layers of government. There's, of course, also local government too. We have multiple layers of government in Australia, which can be seen as a good thing and a bad thing at times. But yeah, really what we want to see is just stronger law <laughs> across the board to ensure we're getting good outcomes for biodiversity. Ewan Ritchie from Deakin University on what we need to look for in the reform of the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, or Australia's new nature laws. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. The third area highlighted in the paper and fundamental to the success of the new laws is clear objectives and measuring outcomes, which means new and strong environmental standards, along with clear policy aims. I asked Ewan what he and his colleagues would be looking for and what we need to look for there. That might be a restoration action. So as an example, you might be you know, trying to improve habitat and plant trees and see what the outcome is. But likewise, we also need to assess the damage of a proposal or an action that's gone ahead. So let's say some areas being cleared, we want to know what the impact of that was on the biodiversity. So that all relies on having effective monitoring through time. And that relates to the standards, of course, because you can't talk about what your environmental standard might be in terms of acceptable losses and what kind of key things might be in terms of what we accept and what we don't accept in relation to the environment, unless, of course, you go and collect the data to see, well, did we meet the standard or not? And the other point related to that um, also that we talk about in the article is the importance of an independent umpire. So not only are we going to have a set of national environmental standards, but we're also going to have uh, an environmental protection agency and they will have the ability to assess proposals to see whether or not they meet those standards and hence, therefore, whether they oppose a, a minimal or no real risk to the environment or whether they propose a substantial risk and or maybe to the extent that they can't go ahead because the, the impact is so large. The big concern that we have and others have is that there's a provision currently where the minister of the time has what's called a call in power where it means that at any point up until the final decision is made, 
a minister can actually step in and override the EPA and make the decision themselves about whether or not the proposal goes ahead. And you can see the issue again with that, where if a particular minister has pressure put on them by a developer to approve a, a proposal, there's a real issue there of independence. So it, it sort of begs the question, if you have an environmental protection agency, but they can still be overruled in what's called the national interest is, is the phrase what that actually involves and whether that will be a good outcome or not for the, for the environment. In a way, this goes back, I think, to the first point in that the minister should have the power, in the case of a trigger, the power to stop something. And yet, on the yeah. other hand, we've just talked about, about yeah. having the independent umpire. So how do those yeah. two relate in, in your view? Yeah, look, I think really what we're asking for is that we absolutely need climate change to be considered and a minister should be empowered to say, well, this poses too great a risk from a climate perspective, so we don't approve this. But we also want to have an environmental protection agency that is properly resourced and empowered to say, based on expert information, expert advice, the data that we have at hand, this development poses a serious um, or unacceptable risk to threatened species and threatened ecosystems, and therefore we don't recommend that it goes ahead. And that shouldn't be approved, you know, or overridden. But at the moment, there is actually the opportunity for that to occur because the minister can step in at any time and say, well, I approve this development. And if that's going to happen, the question is, well, what do we accept as being okay? One out of 100 times? Uh, is that 10 out of 100 times? Is it is it more often than not? How many times is that likely to occur and, and what would be acceptable to people? I think that's a question that I can't answer, but I think it's a really problematic one that, you know, the science will be overridden by other interests. Uh, and that's in part why we also find ourselves in the situation that we do already with our biodiversity. And and you've just picked up my next question in which um, um, you've written papers, other people have written papers, we've seen media stories about the scientists actually being ignored and undermined and that, that information not provided. And in a way, I think that also relates to what we know or don't know about what actually exists in the environment. Like, where is the science that will tell? I mean, there is some science, I know that, but there's also a lot of information we don't have about threatened species. We're still uh, flying in the dark a lot of the time, unfortunately, um, with information. And I think sort of two things, of, uh, two lines of information or amounts of information that we need, you know, one is obviously just, yeah, what's out there, you know, biodiversity. But I think as you pointed to just before is that the public have a right to know about the impacts of developments and about policy on the environment so that when they go to vote, they can make a choice themselves as an individual about whether they're in favour of this or not, because I think a well-functioning democracy is a well-informed democracy. So if people don't have the information that they need to reach a decision about how they think, you know, their particular values are being met or not environmentally speaking, then that's not a good outcome for a democracy either. So I think it's, it's really important on a whole range of reasons to have as much information as possible. You and Richie one of the authors of the paper, Five Things We Need to See in Australia's New Nature Laws. And you want to describe the first four items we need to look for, a climate trigger, habitat protection, clear objectives and measuring outcomes, and an independent umpire. The fifth area is a voice for country and culture. The paper states that environment policy must continue to be developed in partnership with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. It suggests a Land and Sea Country Commissioner, a voice for country, which could lead 
an ongoing collaboration. As Ewan points out, Jack Pasco, a UN man and conservation and research manager at the Conservation Ecology Center, was one of the authors of the paper. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I, I'm not at liberty to talk too much at length about this because I'm, I'm a non-Indigenous person myself. But what I can say on behalf also of, you know, the co-author on the article, Jack Pascoe, that really what this article is just saying is that uh, aside from just the biodiversity values of species, of course, they have cultural value. And that is just as important, obviously, or you could even argue more important than the biodiversity arguments, and they shouldn't be seen as separate. So we need to be making sure that we um, maintain and um, obviously, in many cases, also hopefully enhance and recover species for the cultural values along with the biodiversity values. And that, of course, absolutely requires that First Nations peoples are involved in decision making and in practice you know what people refer to as self-determination those things need to happen and we shouldn't be separating off culture from the environment in terms of law you know that it should be embedded in the law that cultural values are also an important part of maintaining biodiversity what will this look like in 10 years time when it comes up for review i mean the old act every 10 years had to be reviewed uh you know, given how yeah. fast things are changing. Well, look, we've only seen at the moment a small fraction of what might be in the new legislation, and we haven't actually seen the legislation. We've just seen what might be informing it and only a fraction of it. So it's actually really still quite unclear to many of us what the new EPBC or environmental laws will look like. We remain positive that they'll be much stronger than they were in the past because clearly they were not nearly strong enough in the past. It's also one thing to have laws, but they need to be enforced and we need to have proper investment for that. We also need to have proper investment for doing things on country, you know, so, you know, managing invasive species, restoring habitat, you know, all of those things need to come together if we are to have significant improvement for biodiversity. So I'm going to try and be an optimist and hope that we are going to see significant improvement on that front in the, in the new year, which is when at some point next year, we're supposed to see the, the draft, you know, the full environmental laws. Let's hope that they're, they're stronger and they're properly resourced and they're enforced, uh, in which case then, yeah, hopefully in five or 10 years, we may not need to change them that much because they'd be working brilliantly, but um, we have to wait and see. <laughs> we do. Thank you so much for your time today, you and I appreciate, yeah, totally how busy you are. So thank you. Thanks, Judith. You and Richie, Professor of Wildlife Ecology and Conservation at Deakin University. Ewan's research spans a range of fields, including behavioral, community, and evolutionary ecology, conservation biology, landscape ecology, and wildlife management, and with a particular focus on Australia's native mammals. We'll be hearing lots more about the government's overhaul of Australia's environment laws well into the new year, and there's lots more to learn and understand. I'll put a link to the paper, Five Things We Need to See in Australia's New Nature Laws, on the Earth Matters website. Or you could just Google that title and it'll come up. We're coming to the end of the show and a big thank you to you and Richie for joining us on Earth Matters. Thank you also to the people we heard briefly at the beginning of the show. Dr. Kate Umbers, Senior Lecturer at Western Sydney University, 
and Managing Director and Founder of Invertebrates Australia. To hear the full conversation with Kate, go to the episode of Earth Matters that aired on November 26, 2023. And Professor Rob Fowler, who spoke with 3CR way back in 2020, when it became apparent from the interim review of the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act that there was a need for major change. And I'll put a link to that conversation on the Earth Matters website. Earth Matters thanks the Community Radio Network for their work in broadcasting today's episode and bringing it to you, and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne, on Wurundjeri and Bunurong Country. And we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. It's been great having you with us, and do tune in next week for more environment and social justice stories. I'm going to end the show today and the year with the beautiful voice of the late Uncle Archie Roach and one song. Just one song